I've always been intrigued by the stories of people in the jewelry industry who make these items, what inspires them, and brings them to this world. I'm here to share their stories. This is A Thousand Facets. Todd Reed has been a pioneer in the jewelry industry. He doesn't conform to the patterns and has created his own road. On the season finale of A Thousand Facets, the podcast, I chat with Todd about his beginnings and his career. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Hi, Todd. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. It's an incredible pleasure to have you here. Um, I've been a fan of yours for many, many years. I remember the first time I saw your work, I was like Godsmack and I was completely in awe of how you took the raw diamonds and make them sparkle in such a way that nobody has ever done before. And I, I was very, very curious of who you were. And I did meet you very briefly in Couture a few years ago, but it was very like, you know, passing by. Yeah. So um, I, uh, where did you grow up? Um, well, I was born in North Carolina and until I was about 10 years old, I lived on the Eastern shore of Maryland. My stepdad was a boat builder and we were, um, you know, I basically grew up in the boat yard and around the wood shop. And when I was 11 years old, we moved to Phoenix, Arizona. Um, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> um, and, and when I was, uh, 15, I moved to Colorado Springs. Oh wow! So I feel like I, I mostly grew up in Colorado, but I I feel like I did have this really deep connection to the Eastern Shore, and to you know my parents' past being from the East Coast and stuff. Yeah, this, so. it, it, but you also have like a little bit of a journey of like the states, like North Carolina, Maine, then and like uh, Arizona. It's just like you went to. Uh, very beautiful beachy sides to like a desert to Colorado that it's like very mountains. So you have like different textures in your childhood. Absolutely. And I, I really do love the West though, that, it, I, you know, I, I feel very at home, in, you know, out here. So. Yes. Yeah. I've never been to Colorado. It's like one of the things that I will, it's on my list. I know. <laughs> okay. well, we got to get you to my studio then. Cause it's one of the, it's a good experience over here. I I've heard that is one of the most beautiful studios out there. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, my, it was really funny. My husband was just telling me, it's like, we need to go to Colorado. Um, it, it's on the list. It's just like, I, we want to go sometimes in the summer because in the winter gets, you know, like the Rockies and stuff like that gets very snowy. So <laughs> I need to make sure that it's, like, we can experience Colorado in, a, in, in the summer or spring. Absolutely. Was, it, was the best time to go, you think? You know, I'm a huge fan of where I live, so I feel like it's always the right time to go. I'm not a big snow person myself mm -hmm. um, of the desert. I love the heat, and we have these 100-degree days, and it's really dry here. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that the spring is probably the spring, summer, fall. Is mm -hmm. September is absolutely hands down the best time to be in Colorado. Oh, with well, all the changing before the snow after the heat it's perfect <laughs> well that I'm, I'm gonna make a note of that maybe next year i'll gonna go by that um, and we'll forward this for my colorado ambassadorship which is my next role <laughs> <laughs> well we love that we love when you know people love their their place you know <laughs> and and I'm a, i'm a huge supporter of like you have to go to this place you have to go to this place i, I yeah. always <laughs> oh, yeah. um so can you do you have any first memory of jewelry? Yeah, I have, I have many, but my, my the most important first memory of jewelry is the one that sort of inspired me to do the whole jewelry thing, which was, and some old people will remember this gentleman in Bisbee, Arizona. Mm -hmm. uh, his name was Bisbee Bob, and Bisbee Bob would uh, set up his jewelry enclosure in the hotel i forget which hotel it is now i was like 10 years old at the time and we were on a like a family trip with our good family friends and i watched the guy so you basically go into the mines you mm -hmm. 
find a rock. The idea would be that you would take the rock to the guy and really, you know, now that I've done this for a long time, I, he probably had another, you know, another rock. I'm not sure that he was, he didn't have a lapidary setup or anything, but he, Bisbee Bob, real guy would mm -hmm. make the jewelry. And I remember sitting in his little window and looking up at him and it had like a lot of like leaves and um, really pretty motifs, things that he could quickly put together for the um, guests of the hotel. Um, and I was absolutely taken that everybody was getting a piece of jewelry. Everybody was so happy. Everybody was so excited about being able to go all the way from the rock to the finished pieces of jewelry and um i also thought it was so cool how he had all those little things like in jewelry there's all the little things and when he was behind the glass window so all those little things you could see little tools and stuff um bisbee bob bisbee arizona oh, i love that I, i think that as a child i can imagine seeing the magic of creating something in your hands like right in front of you must have been like so fascinating yeah, yeah that good experience um my mom was a painter my grandparents were painters like i said my dad was a boat builder so i definitely had this experience of being around things that were happening with the hands my grandma was really into like flower arrangements and I used to spend a lot of time in her workshop so um but I always remembered that experience of making jewelry um watching that guy do it and when i was 15 or 16 or when i first got a chance to do it myself um it came very very naturally I, I guess I've been thinking about it for a long time wow so where where do you went to learn how to make jewelry when you were 15 16 um I just went into the guest bedroom of my apartment at the time and <laughs> I was working as a leather smith mm -hmm. for uh, who I considered to be maybe like my first mentor ever and maybe most important one his name is eric hodges um hesperus colorado and he hired me to do leather smithing um mm. like some custom high-end clothing that were made out of hand braided um tanned and stretched deer skin um from the area and he was kind of um, a well-known guy and he was very busy and i became his one of his guys one of the people that worked for him and at some point he was asking people to figure out how to make the silver buttons or silver parts for the um for the clothes and for the handbags and for the um, backpacks and stuff and i just got really excited by it um teaching myself how to dome the conchos and stamp the conchos and make at the time what i called a bevel which i learned was called a bezel for mm -hmm. the stuff uh to hold in and i wasn't so concerned with like if it was made right or anything but i sure i liked the look of it and we ended up putting a lot of conchos and so it's um yeah i mean it was yeah really fantastic so yeah that was my first sort of like remembrance of me doing it and eric hodges being like the mentor in my life showing me how to do handmade things and showing me that you could do things in a unique hand way artisanal fashion and he was unique his name was uh nickname was barefoot hodges he didn't wear he didn't wear shoes you know so, uh, so, but he was an, an incredible craftsperson and taught me a lot of um, valuable life skills and business things also that's amazing did you um went to school afterwards to like uh continue your education or it was mostly uh like mentorships like that Yeah, no, at the time I dropped out of college um, because I felt not like disconnected to the university world and really connected to the making world. Mm -hmm. And um, I just, no, I never took any other things. At some point I got to meet this really exceptional goldsmith uh, named uh, Harold O'Connor who did granulation jewelry and um He's kind of an icon in, in jewelry and he lives in Colorado and he taught me some things. Um, and one of my close friends now who I just used to stand outside of his window and watch him make jewelry, him and his wife, his name is Jeff Wise. Um, and I would just stand outside his window when I was a teenager in my early 20s and just watch him make jewelry. And I, I think it got to be a little bit maybe annoying, but at some point he came out and was like, what gives, man? And <laughs> 
you know, I'm a jeweler and this, that, and the other. <laughs> he was the one that told me that it wasn't called a bevel. It was called a bezel. And he told me what fire scale was and gave me some ideas about um, how to proceed, yeah. um, you know, in making the jewelry. So I never, I didn't really take any classes, but I definitely had people that I asked questions to that were thoughtful um, enough most of the time to answer questions for me. Which is so important in the process sometimes like I personally through truly have been have learned my jewelry through people not through a school mm -hmm. like I went to school for something different and then yeah. my jewelry skills and like my jewelry knowledge has been through life so it is it's great that you had that support system in a way of just like giving you like a direction Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, the friends and the, the colleagues are really important. I learned, um, you know, lathe work through like a master, you know, Jem Carver, Lou Wackler, and like I said, the granulation and stuff through Harold O'Connor. So I definitely tried to like learn as much as I could from the people who I thought were the best at what they were at, what that was that they were doing. And then I was trying to create my own techniques or own ideas sort of at the same time so it was nice to um you know have people around to sort of you know like they were they were supportive you know i was like a young a very young person um introducing some kind of introducing some ideas and also like a sponge i just really wanted to the, anything anybody was going to say um whether it was had to do with blacksmithing or goldsmithing or whatever it was it had to do with metal and hammers and stuff i was like oh really okay 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 i'll try that okay okay and you know somebody would say oh i'll teach you how to raise a bowl and i'd be like great i'll be there let's do it you know or i'll you know so it was a i definitely learned in a nice in a nice way that's amazing that's it is it, it's, it's so i love being surrounded by creativity and artistry mm -hmm. and the fact that everybody shared the knowledge it's just like a nice little it's just like a gift to have that kind of interaction with people not everybody likes to share their knowledge i, I, I found that out too but the one you know, <laughs> the, um people who are looking to build relationships and to build a community and believe that there is a community um want to want to share it and so yeah exactly and that's what I personally want to build is, is a community of people that just love the craft of jewelry. Every time that I see your work, I know it's yours. Like I don't even need to like look at the name every time that I, I see and it, it can it can be anything. It can be a ring and earrings, necklace. Every time that I see it, it carries your DNA. Can you tell me how you have kept that like how do you first of all how do you create it your voice and then how do you have that continued consistency um gosh that's a great question if i get lost bring me back into oh back, no back on the rail here there's probably Please. a lot in there you know it's funny i don't i don't want to sound blase like saying i don't know because i definitely have put a lot of energy into what does the brand mm -hmm. feel like but i actually don't know you know i think about this all the time like what is it it can't just be the texture or the use of heavy material in certain areas or a surplus of stones in an area where it's atypically seen or you know it's not it's something a little bit different and i feel like oftentimes the focus of, of when i design a piece of jewelry i make a piece of jewelry my team one it's not just me it's a whole group of people we're doing this together mm -hmm. Um, that there's a nature of two things. One is heritage and one is talismanic mm -hmm. energy. So the pieces really aren't for now, even though somebody in the in us making one or whatever in the process, it's definitely being made now, but I'm really focused on things being timeless. So even though I'm in constant seem seemingly discussions around like why we don't want to make what's popular right now, because that would be so smart for the business, um, Maybe it's my naivete or the idea that I feel like the pieces should should feel timeless always. And maybe that's part of the thing that keeps them consistently feeling like me. But I appreciate you saying that because oftentimes I'll make something different and it's like, that doesn't look like you or, you know, people tell me that, you know, maybe that wasn't really my work or whatever, but I've got lots of ideas. And for the last 30 years or whatever, I've been playing with a lot of different ideas and I think 
like media and things do, people kind of see what what gets out there the most, you know, rather than a full representation of what I do. And I've never been really that excited about photographing everything that I make in order to put it out there for the world to see. But um, I do feel like we make a lot of really special pieces and I do hope that there's some DNA in there. <laughs> I just don't know exactly what the, what it is. Cause sometimes it'll be a really high polished piece even doesn't have any of the texture or any mm -hmm. of the black um, metal or any of the, um, rough diamonds or any of the irreverent material choices but hopefully it does still feel like us and i feel like it has to do with those aspects of um you know heritage i i think so i i've seen so many because i have definitely seen different pieces that you've made that are not like the raw diamonds and the oxidized uh metal or you know the black and metal Mm -hmm. And I can still see you. I, I can yeah. definitely see you. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's that's a top piece. Like, I, I really, it, it speaks to me immediately. And I don't even need to look at the name. So, and I mean, you should share more of the pictures because I really enjoy it. <laughs> I really enjoy seeing your work. Um, well, we're, working, we're working on um, somehow having somebody like grab my cell phone and get into that and get the pictures off of that. Because I feel like it's a goldmine of like the things that I might. Um, not show everybody and then oh my god i would love to see it. Was, lots of time lots of time i'm gonna have to go to colorado and take the pictures myself <laughs> yeah. you can be the one that go through the cell phone <laughs> yes oh my god i will totally do that you have made raw diamonds something luxurious something special something so beautiful and i feel that people have started seeing the raw diamonds completely different as something as special in a way as not not everybody but i do as uh, the polish diamond uh you know like I, the rose gold how do you start working with those that's another good question um the, my first interaction with the rough diamonds were in high school geology class and i just mm. really taken by the diamond i was interested in it from like a chemo like a chemistry i just thought it was cool the c4 molecules i i guess i thought that the whole idea of this raw material was very interesting from like a science perspective and then it slid over really easily into a social like period of questioning which is to like huh this diamond which grows cubic and has these octahedral cleavage planes and has this interesting colorful polycrystalline coating and it doesn't always very rarely even looks like this white thing and it's so much more interesting i started thinking about character in diamonds and why do we only see the white ones and why is value and love and all the things associated with the with the white ones but not the other ones and it really like just the observation of what was going on around me as a young man um, in society and somebody who was also just looking at this raw material from in science class and being like, this thing is really cool. It's already cool. It's like the crystal is way cool. The cleavage patterns are yeah. cool. The diversity and range of color, hardness, texture. Um, and then of course this, idea that the thing could sparkle um that it has this wild monetary association and that it has this really i guess i would say like all these different brutal realities associated all the way from like the mining all the way from the like oh i only have a half carrot so he must not love me that much to all these sort of crazy things and i just felt like this is really worth observing and maybe poking a little fun at um and so I started to recognize that the four by four by four millimeter raw diamond cube weighed one carat. And I thought, wouldn't that be nice to make a one carat diamond ring that nobody knew what it was? And it would bring some question into the light about what it was to have a one carat because everybody would come in and be like, I want a carat. And I get it. I think it's cool. I, I, I want a carat too. Um, but you know, so I just started playing with the, the fact that they were unique, that the people that I was engaging with were unique that I found out through my short life already. because I was whatever teenager when I was doing that, um, that I was attracted to the things that were unique, but also somewhat closetly associated with things that were the same, i.e. 
I could understand diamonds, but I wanted them to be unique. I can understand whatever. You can understand skateboarding, but you want to do a really unique trick. You know, there's like a genre that's like acceptable that you want to push the boundary in. And I found um, very quickly that for me, it was diamonds. It seemed to be the quickest one that I could associate with that seemed to have the most bandwidth in terms of like um, fun and margin of both social and financial implications because when I started doing my first shows and showing all of my weird works, you know, the rough diamonds were a very small percentage. They were just a few pieces. I was doing colored stones. I had lots of boxes and things, objects, weird stuff. And um, people just really liked the rough diamonds. They thought it was unique and they bought them. And I thought, well, I agree. I think they're special and unique too. And, and so the rough diamond became I think it was timing or whatever. It became something that I became associated with, but I always had my hands in lots of different styles of, of jewelry, but that, yeah, my first doses of rough diamonds came that way. Yeah. I fell in with Jack Greenspan who um, invented crystallite corporation back in the 1940s. And he had an amazing diamond collection. I met him through a diamond collector called Mark Houghton who owns a company called Rock Deco, who sells rough diamonds also. I picked him up hitchhiking and he was like, oh man, you're into diamonds too. And took me to this guy and changed my life around the rough diamond to learn more about all the different shapes, the origins, the locales, the whys, the what's, the whens. Um, Found out that it was so much deeper than I had thought just by making fun of the industry. It actually was the backbone of the industry. Without rough diamonds, there was no diamonds. And without the courage of people who sifted through all the stuff to find out what was really cool and the Lawrence graphs who polished through the polycrystalline coatings to see the translucent centers. And, the, you know, this is this whole interesting thing. And I think as a consumer, we only saw the one little piece, which was the finished white product. And I wanted to start to pay yeah. attention, like, you know, the proverbial diamond in the rough. And you got to imagine this was the early nineties. It wasn't now, it wasn't exactly the internet and social media. So that kind of thing, like the diamond in the rough wasn't so cheesy. It was pretty real. Like it's like a needle in the haystack, yeah. finding your true love, finding a unique diamond. And we, I wanted to rebut the obviousness of it has to be clear. It has to be big. It has to be this. It has to be from this origin. I just wanted to say like you know like the little prince like what i say is beautiful is beautiful so let's pay attention to that and if people connected to that then we had sort of a nice relationship so that was the origin of the rough diamond and how it rose to the top over other stones i am almost desperate this. i'm like i just want to go first of all i want to go to those people that you've talked to and like really have like a dinner of just like talking about this because i'm like completely fascinated by this yeah. Personally, I love rough diamonds, mine cut diamonds better. I, I'm more, I'm, I don't care much about the flawless, beautiful, sparkly diamond. I, I do have my engagement ring that I love and I tell everybody that that's, that's the only diamond that is beautiful, like it's like white that I own. Everything else that I have is like, it's more rough or rose cut browns and just or mine cut and yeah. for me they have more personality they have more life they have more soul to them <laughs> i feel like something perfect tends to be boring in my book right well it certainly begs a question but, like what's perfect you know, and, and why you know yeah <laughs> very true very true it's like it's just yeah i agree it, you know but the, it's, it's something that for me like something that is just like sparkly for the sense of sparkle yeah. loses that spirit that something with a lot of uh texture and just uh inclusions that those for me are like the most interesting gemstones and, yeah. and overall like in life you know everybody that has like rough like has a little weirdness in their in their lives it's like somebody that i'm interested in absolutely i completely agree i completely agree um and contrast is nice you know i've like with the with rough i often use a lot of polished stones so for me it hasn't always 
just been because I was making, you know, designing jewelry before, you know, I started using the rough diamonds and I feel like I'm clearly like my brand is defined by the rough diamonds. Um, and at the same time, there's this, a lot of polished and interesting contrast going on, which kind of creates the DNA or the texture that we're talking about. Cause I felt like when the jewelry was all rough, and things go through periods. I make these incredibly rough things now still, but vastly we try to bring in contrast and texture. Cause I don't use a lot of um, elements other than that, you know, just, just texture, really the only element that I use. Can you tell me a little bit about your creative process? Like how do you come up with new uh, lines? Like you have truly have come up with like incredible shapes or uh just like the way that you do certain earrings like sometimes you come up with these collections that I've never seen anybody do that kind of work before just like the way that things are hinged together or uh finish or just like the way they hang is very very different from a lot of people I, I feel like you always try to um one-up yourself in a way mm. you know like make you know try to like all right, why can I do that? It's like different and new. How do you start with that process? Um, again, that's a great question. I, I feel that, that it's like I got a couple different layers to it. This is interesting. You know, I was talking to a friend the other day who's a musician and I said something about, I asked something and he, he said, you know, Todd, you know, the, the, the more shallow people get, the deeper I get deeper I get or that the more shallow people are the deeper I get he said I've just yeah learned how to play music as a, as a you know as a young man and made a living at it um now of course that's an incredibly humble answer to uh, you know um to this particular gentleman and for me I think there's something like that I'm not sure that I'm always trying so much one of the things is um my um a little bit of naivete as to what's going on around me like I'm really just mm. not paying close attention to what other brands or what other colleagues or what other um, artists or what jewelry companies are making. I feel like when I go to an exhibit or I go see a friend's show or I go to their studio or something and they show me something, I'm like, you know, much better off than I, I got rid of social media actually because I like picked some kind of like well somebody else did but I met them on it like some social media brawl and like I got like I just was like I just don't want to um, always be looking to try to do something um, so I think about the jewelry in terms of the body I oftentimes think of the when I'm designing and you asked about my process a lot of times they're well, they're all natural inspirations, whether they come from beauty of somebody that I'm looking at. I might, you know, look at you right now and you've got these angle to your glass frame and that might turn me on to an idea about something like that. I never would like look through a magazine or a book or walk through a trade show or look through social media and see what what's going on. So I think sometimes it's just that I'm a little late to the game. And I also, because my things are focused on heritage, which means they're always going to be timeless. I'm really kind of focused on my own, like, how can I make this uh, connection work? And trust me, we've made a lot of mistakes, like don't do this connection again, you know, but it, I'd rather it work in our favor that it fails in real life. We've only made one of them. We build an intimacy with the owner. We rebuild it. We figure it out. We get stronger. We get better. You know, the jewelry definitely gets better and better and better. Um, but I think that a lot of it is the me looking at people and watching somebody dance or talk on the phone or just exist, you know, my own people in my life, um, how I interact with things. So how can you get away with a massive piece of jewelry that feels okay to wear or a small jewelry that a piece of jewelry that has an amazingly loud voice or something that's got a mm -hmm. tremendous personal weight to it um, where that weight might not necessarily be acknowledged by people outside. Um, yeah, I think there's kind of a, I'm just kind of playing with myself and with the clients who are making primarily one of a kinds for the last 
bunch of years. Um, and so also in that, I'm not really falling down the rabbit hole of like, oh, this is who I am now. Now there's a hundred of these and every size, every color, every shape. And even if like the earring wire doesn't work or the mechanism doesn't work or the whatever, then we would try to convince everybody else that it's them, not us. And they have to adapt it. You know, now we would just be like, yeah, that sucks. I'm so sorry that we botched that. You know, we're going to make it better. Um, and people usually are like, that's great. You know, so uh, I think in that way, I'm not paying attention so much in that way the pieces seem um, fluid and fresh and I'm paying attention to nature which oftentimes doesn't follow the rules of what can or can't be done. Um, last night I went to bed and there was um, the spot in my garden that didn't have anything in it. And this morning I woke up and there was this wild mushroom in there. And I was like, I, you know, these things happen fast in nature and they're really beautiful and they're really irreverent. And why can't we be like that as a business? You know, we want to make the jewelry, the things that are gorgeous, that are unique to me. Um, and not pay too much of attention if they're going to like set the world on fire, you know, hopefully they connect with the person that's going to buy them. Then. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I, I'm, I love that. Um, there's, uh, I'm just like here, like looking at your, at your Instagram page, just like, you know, just like scrolling down while you, but mm -hmm. listening to you explain to me, which is like so beautiful because I'm seeing that in your work when like you're talking. Um, and one of the things is that, that I've just like noticed is like, you're like, big on coughs can you mm. tell me about that like what's what's what about coughs is something that really uh, attracts you um that's a great question and i want uh, maybe you can actually tell me where we are in history with cups right now I, I i don't pay attention to to it um i know that we're not selling quite as many big cups or selling kind of smaller pieces mm -hmm. right now mm -hmm. um i like the wrist because i like the hand I think yeah. in terms of body parts on men and women, the wrist and is very, I don't know what, I'm not a linguist, important. Um, it, it attracts me. You know, I think that, um, I don't know, I'm just looking at my own wrist right now. I've got a bracelet on. Like, I, I think it's a great, it's a great place to have a piece of jewelry. Um, yeah. And I think the wrist is also a larger format um, than other parts of the body, the ear and the finger. Um, and then oftentimes with necklaces, because of, you know, again, and I, it's not, I don't say I don't like look to search to pay attention, but I am awake and I do notice. So, you know, big jewelry is just not as important as it used to be. And when I started making jewelry in yeah. the 19th, and throughout the 90s and the early 2000s big jewelry was very important and people were wearing it um, mm -hmm. everywhere now people are wearing oh, it's going to come back and that's and that's the nature soon. of being sort of timeless right like so i like yeah. the big format i still make brooches i yeah. i make big cufflinks you know i i make things that are large yeah because I like the format, because I'm trying to mess around with textures like we just talked about. And I yeah. think when it's too yeah. tiny, if it's only two millimeters wide, millimeter thick, and it's got a bunch of diamonds on them, there's no way to have any of the connection to any of the process that we're doing because we're hand making this jewelry yeah. in a really um, unique way. And I think when people come to the shop, you can definitely see that. It's hard to understand because of how many ways there are to make jewelry nowadays with computers, mm -hmm. um, and process, process making and mm -hmm. yeah it's it's, it's kind of it's pretty unique i would say yeah well you know you're, you're talking to somebody that doesn't <laughs> take these bracelets you know like i have five bracelets in my wrist and i at all times and i sleep with them and i carry right. them all the time yeah i agree i agree but as you said as you just i didn't mean to cut you off but it, there was something about like what you when you just showed me your because nobody knows that we're on video so we can see each other and um but it's like they're fun to wear. People love bracelets. Yeah. And also there was a there was a sort of a there's things that follow a vocabulary in jewelry. Mm -hmm. And I like to I have liked to. I don't know how much I like to now, but 
you know, try to just stay on the edge of that. And I think the bigger the bracelet, it would, it would lower the amount of, you know, like say in turn, you know, cause the other half of the business, there's the portion of it's like, you make the stuff that's an important part and then you got to get it somewhere. And that's the other part. So I figured for me that it was never going to sell a lot of jewelry. I was going to make jewelry that I felt was important. And so I think when I make the bigger mm-hmm. bracelets, I have a bigger opportunity to try to make something that people are like, that's going to be really uncomfortable and make it comfortable or something mm-hmm. that feels like, oh, I can't wear an art project around because I don't go to openings anymore. Or we don't sit on boards anymore. Or we don't. I'm like, yeah, but these are really comfortable and they can be worn with jeans and T-shirts at the farmer's market just as well as at the um, opera board meeting and so I just started having fun with the idea that these cuffs weren't symbols of wealth but they were symbols of personal and and I said that the jewelry means two things it's heritage and it's talismanic and that talismanic energy is that personal you know energy that transcends all time so you can wear a rocking big cuff in a (laughs) you know in a in a in a in a smaller situation and feel just fine but yeah, I've always been attracted to the um, bracelets. I am somebody that I will wear like an, a sequence to work. So yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm, I'm, you're, you're, you're preaching to the choir right here. Like <laughs> I've been known to wear like insane outfits just because it's a Tuesday. I will wear, I, I, I like to layer. I like to show my personality. Life is too short to wear boring clothes. <laughs> People that follow a thousand passes, I hate crocs and sweatpants so like <laughs> i will wear a cute big outfit just because that's great and that's that's how i roll i i want to talk to you a little bit about um the responsibility because mm-hmm. i feel that you have created your business in a responsible manner and mm-hmm. uh i I've, I've heard through the grapevine that you're office spaces your studio is a zero waste space mm-hmm. um can you tell me a little bit of the importance of you know for you of like being a responsible artist in this world um yeah i can um so when in 1988 to 1992 thinking about jewelry and thinking about business and thinking about how i was going to start to put this thing together um my very best and oldest friend his name is bennett was taking um taking vows as a um a buddhist at the chiknat han school in london i believe and was talking about this concept of right relationship which had a lot to do with social civic and environmental what was called stewardship but balance so it made a lot of sense to me and we would have these talks um i actually should remind him about that i don't think he would he would know about this podcast but yeah it was very influential in the beginnings of the foundations of what what the kind of business is that i wanted to have um so environmental stewardship um peace social and civic responsibility um so i think that that i when i started buying the rough diamonds one i mean i didn't know anything i just knew that i wanted to buy the byproducts of the industry um what i learned though quickly and this was very early in the business there were not rough diamond beads at the trade shows or at gem shows or at any anywhere um and i was and why i know about crystallite corporation and why i got so you know, interested in the Greenspan collection and everything was because there wasn't a way to go buy these things out there. Um, the gentleman named Falk Berger from Santa Fe who sold rough diamonds in small quantities and he's an amazing, brilliant Smith himself. So it was like, you know, you're kind of taking his inventory if you needed a rough diamond or um, guy um, who I really admire also who was doing rough diamonds in his jewelry you know, well before me, Michael Zobel um, out of Germany, who was using cubes, but not other rough diamond shapes. I don't even know how they were getting them, but basically, and then um, the other guy, well, anyway, there's a few people and they were having to get them basically from industrial suppliers. Um, So, you know, the whole rough diamond thing wasn't 
like it is now. And I was trying to use, like I say, byproducts, things that were thrown away. So the diamond mines were open and ripping and looking for a certain type of translucent material and a certain type of polycrystalline coated material was um, thrown back into the tailing pits, picked up by the um, nickel plating companies that were going to plate steel for drill bits and other stuff. Mm. They making industrial diamond. Um, so I kind of felt like I was skirting the toxicity of the industry by not actually using the the 1% that everybody else wanted in the world. Uh, um, Michael Kowalski at Tiffany and Laurelton Diamonds, where they would own own the, all the diamond mines, but only use the top 1%. And then the rest would go to the other um, back to the table to sell and we would say can we get the bottom one percent you know we were just really scrounging to try to figure out how to how to get the the material um i ran across my current diamond dealer in 19 in the early 90s um andrew schlesinger and i'd work with his father and um he basically love andrew <laughs> said how can i get your business and we said this is how because at the time you know, the raw material was like $2 a carat. So it was only, it was really about um, sorting for us. We said we need to have things exactly one millimeter, exactly two millimeter, exactly three, exactly 3.5. And hence, you know, all these businesses started. And at a certain point, I felt that putting, doing all rough diamond jewelry was actually less sustainable. Um, it didn't follow the sustainability practice. It started, people started going back into back into holes, opening up previous collections, doing all kinds of things to get to rough, to get more beads on the market, to get a piece of the pie, basically. And major companies, obviously, De Beers and other companies started not just selling them to be cut, but actually making jewelry and going, as they said back then, which we don't say now because the diamond biz is kind of abusive. They would say cradle to grave, but I think they meant cradle to cradle, meaning just all the way from the ground to the retail store because there was this thing that was happening mm -hmm. with other jewelry designers where there were a lot of millions of dollars in um, sales happening and it wasn't going to the traditional diamond biz and people were, um, I think, a little bit potentially bent out of shape about that. So, um Hence, rough diamonds being everywhere, you know, and, 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 and opaque diamonds. And, and we started shifting to in the, I'd say, early 2000s to buying bridal mandalas from auction houses and different places, again, where I was trying not to be in the center of the industry. I was trying to, I knew that I was playing a dangerous game because I didn't want to hurt any environmental, civic, or um, social structures or be in any contradiction to the lane of the kind of business that I wanted to have. Um, so it kept getting more limited and limited as to how you can actually procure material. Um, so we then discovered like what now is called breakout diamonds, <laughs> you know, which are diamonds that have come out of other things. You know, we buy gold, we buy gold, we get your class ring. We pop all the stuff out of it, and now what do we do with it? Well, we discovered that nobody was doing anything with it. These diamonds were just sitting around, and then we thought, well, that's another byproduct. And so I rationalized in my naive mind that um, I was gonna, not going to hurt any of these structures that I committed not to hurting by buying things that were byproducts always of an industry. So things that come up to auction used older things that didn't have any love anymore things that were broken chipped <laughs> screwed up <laughs> you know, that we would recut or figure out so my diamond procurement one is i only buy diamonds from the one the one person i trust you know them they trust me and i'm really small when I was really much larger, I realized how hard it was to ensure that we could always have every size, every color, every shape um, sustainably. And by being at a reasonable size company now, one vendor, one dealer, same one agreement, and everybody follows Kimberly process now. So that's not the point. I really wanted to stay entirely away from it. So we tend to buy things that are yeah. secondhand um, is the best I can say it. Yes. No, that's 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 incredible. The fact that you 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 still have a decent large company, you know, like you have a good size company. You have your workers and you have your your store and your studio, but then you're like really working hard to be more responsible and not create more damage to the environment, which is 
we need the especially this year that was the the hottest year in history yeah um, i do yeah i'm not um i don't know i one of the things again this is like i i don't necessarily try to take the easy way i work incredibly hard it's just that i found that it was going to be easier yeah. to skirt the issue in a certain way rather than like try to be in it in a superior way like oh i only buy from yeah this green company or whatever i think that's hard to always do because we can't always do that um so i've just established a style of buying rather than one stone one because what if that company doesn't have it you know now all of a sudden you're yeah. having to break a corporate responsibility plan and so we just built into our responsibility plan that our vendor does what we need to get what we need and that's so why i just buck the responsibility basically onto other people and then we keep just ensuring that we're working through like a secondhand basically protocol oh, until it came to Argyle oh. and then everything got so competitive. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, we were lucky oh. to have Argyle diamonds, which was the great exception, I think, um, other than Akate and Diamond yeah. diamonds that are currently, um, but we're still able to buy older Canadian diamonds that thankfully are still coming out of collection and being recut. Can you tell me a little bit about your studio? Uh, do you have jewelers working with you? Do like the production or like how how is that process in, in your work in your studio? Um, we're a really small studio um, right now in my business. If it sounds like you've been watching things for a while, it got gets bigger and smaller over the last 30, over 30 years. And I'm at a great size right now. And our flow is very reasonable. We just had a company lunch right before our, we got on the call together. And um, I have to say the size is um, is very nice. Our system is that I work not so much on um, the things that I had worked on, say like pre-pandemic, which were like always growing, always growing, always growing, and always finding new relationships mm -hmm. and partnerships and checking to make sure everybody was doing everything well. Um, during the pandemic years, I realized that the thing that I miss is doing the things that I like, um, which are designing jewelry, making jewelry, um, and eventually talking to, to clients when it comes to custom design, but not you know, counting Melly or pricing things or, you know, whatever other people can do well. Um, so we have a pretty good team, a great team right now. My daughter works in the business, my 21-year-old daughter. She works in the inventory department, with the woman who really runs our whole, our, our back end, Elaine, and uh, the front of our store is run by a woman named Naja. And we work together as a team to bring in the sales and the designs. I do all the drawings on all the designs. Like I said, everything's one of a kind at this point. So we're doing a lot of drawings, a lot of pricing. And then I just walk things right through this small little door right on the other side of the wall. <laughs> I sit with, the, we have four goldsmiths at this point who have all been with me since, um, and they're sure they don't want to no, but you know, 20, 20 years plus. And they know my, um, well, one, they've seen all the sizes of the company and all the different ways that we've done manufacturing and making and the ways that I've done things. And we've come to a an agreement basically on that we're going to run a pretty loose shop. I'm going to draw the designs. I'm going to come in. We're going to talk about how things need to get made and make sure that we have enough material to melt down and make the shapes or whatever that we need to get through them on time because even though we wanted to loosen up certain things within the shop our outwardly facing you know dates and commitments are incredibly important and we book you know pretty far in advance um but it's pretty low key uh the pieces are all made by hand we um still fabricate everything and we work as a team you know so like right now the entire team is working on one order which is nice um we still have the thing that we've always had in place where one jeweler will make a piece start to finish and they get to stamp their name on the inside of the piece they made it i don't mm. make i designed it but they made it um and even though i now work in the shop with the jewelers um i work on my own things and they work on their things but right now we have a big order in and um all hands are on deck and everybody's making it. And it's really fun to actually watch everybody work together. And although we don't have one direct manager, any one of the 
goldsmiths would take over whatever needed to be managed. And then we keep a really clean shop. You talked about the studio a little bit, and that's really important to the, the order of the studio because we're a busy workshop for a really small company, and we make big projects that take sometimes eight months to a year, along with other projects that mm. are, we don't really make bread and butter um, jewelry so much anymore. And we're sort of discouraging the dealers to be buying that kind of jewelry. So we are putting a lot of time and energy into each piece. So for the last two mm. years, I've been working on a watch collection and making a watch is no small, um, no small thing. So we started a secondary shop, you know, where I do the watch the watch work and we try to just really keep things very organized i would say would be the the main um way that the production happens but everything is fabricated oh. so it's a still of a a really 4g um metally like questiony like hey do you think we can get this to go into this shape you know the kind of a workshop love that so what what uh, inspired you to go to the realm of watches um well I've always, i mean you can't be in jewelry and not notice watches um so there's a, there's a lot of reasons why i've always been into watches my family was a you know watch making family um from switzerland and, and I, it's always been a part oh. of my family hearing tales of you know stories from my mom or from my uncle about their grandfather hunched over his machines and you know with his little eyepiece in looking at things and I remember when I was 30 I got a gift of like from my uncle his like some of the things that he had made his own tooling that he had made in horology school in Switzerland and um, some pieces that he had made for Tissot when he started to you know be working in that factory and I, I don't know there's something about like the watches which um and which are beautiful and again they're wrist wear um even though I work on a lot of pocket watches and stuff um I, i i really feel like the way that we adorn the wrist is the way that we adorn the hand so and uh, the coffee goes back to that yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah well and i'm not an apple watch guy you know i don't think um i think that that watches really should look great and i think that it's okay to wear a watch even if you look at your phone to tell the time and i just kept thinking like uh, not that i want to reinvent anything because i'm I think I'm not of the appropriate age for that right now, but I just because my energy level is lower, but I didn't want to take things that I've been looking at that seem to be looking the same again, a little bit like the diamond jewelry and just go, what can I do unique? And I'm not like another yeah. black skeletal watch or whatever. Isn't something that is exciting, you know, um, for me and what's great about the world that we live in right now with the access and the world wide web um, there can be things for everybody and so I actually felt like a bunch of years ago maybe 15 or more 19 years ago I started a watch project and I didn't succeed at it I failed pretty miserably and I didn't tuck it away I just put it on the back burner um, and I wanted to get better at it and so I worked hard to learn how to repair watches and what are things called and how to build things and then um, focused on what I wanted to do with it and um, which was to really just make a beautiful watch that would last forever a really simple idea um, and I found I think some pitfalls of like trying you know making things that maybe are a little bit familiar in terms of dive styles or racing styles or whatever but I really settled into what I love about watches which are like these the gentlemen's watches they're not ultra complicated I don't like too many things going on um, I just think they should be really beautiful um, I think they should be unique and special and they should tell a great time <laughs> and they should last forever <laughs> and that's the that's my value system around watches right now but I'm you know just getting started oh you know I personally like men's watches a lot I actually and tend to go towards the men's watches instead of the women's watches because I like a big face yeah. and I have a a small collection of like I'm not gonna say how many but you know like they usually is like I have like maybe like 70% are men's watches 30% women but they still are like big face ones wearing one right now I haven't worn one because I for some reason I got like an allergy on my wrist or why <laughs> But I, I love watches. I don't feel comfortable without a watch. Like really? I feel like it's, I'm, I'm unfinished if I I don't have a watch with me. Yeah, well, so I agree. That, and I think it's a logical extension too of jewelry. There's a certain point like, you know, we're, we're small. Like I said, you know, I, I think I just want to keep making exciting things. And it made logical sense, you know, make like a ring, a ring watch or a, I started 
you know, some years ago, I bought a bunch of like cameos and made some really interesting like locket type things and was like, okay, here's things mm. that things that do things. And then as we were making, yeah. you know, lighters and ashtrays and housewares and stuff over the last 10 years or so, I get to thinking, okay, jewelry does do stuff. You know, we, I'm into the talismanic nature of the jewelry, which is yeah. very personal and very energetic. But then there's, you know, I like making things at the end of the day. And that was one of the things that I've been yeah. thankful to realize is that I rather than running companies and traveling around the country trying to sell things, I really, really like making things. That's, that's what I like doing. So, um, yeah, so it's just like, well, can we make things that are somewhat functional too? And I don't know. I, I'm, I'm exploring. Yeah, I love that. Um, can you, I, 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 I know that you're very passionate about emerging artists. Mm-hmm. How did that came about in your world and how are you, working with emerging artists to help them? I think, again, that this comes back to like a very naive conversation with my good friend Bennett in the 1980s about right relationship and about thinking about just people. Um, I I don't know. This is no easy trick here, trying to make something that doesn't exist, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. trying to sell it to somebody who doesn't need it. Um, yeah. I don't know. I never got like the book that said how easy it was. Um, and, or the teacher that said, it doesn't exist. (laughs) Or, um, and it's not like it's supposed to be easy, but I think that uh, there is a certain way that people gave to me, people liked what I was doing and, um, my energy for whatever reason was outgoing enough at the time to, to connect with people. And I've, I just, that meant everything to me. I did not go to college. I did not go to art school. I did not work as an apprentice to somebody or have any real rightful way to have been given the gifts that I was given. And it came from connecting with people. And I really believe in the community of artists and the greater community of um, artists. And I don't just mean makers, but it's like the whole thing. It's the people who buy it. It's the people who collect it. It's the people who sell it. It's all people who make it. It's people who ideate it, who can't make it, who aren't skilled enough or don't want to, or what it's all those things together. Like I celebrate it all. Um, and I feel like I kind of mentor people primarily. Um, I do mentor people who have gone through school and stuff, but I end up mentoring a lot of times people who have not gone to school because my path is somewhat indirect and somewhat irreverent um, in that I'm someone who just says, let's go do it. You know, um, I have a, a young man who I think started out as some type of a mentee with me recently, a couple of years ago, maybe four or five years ago, six years ago, and has become a pretty good friend. Um, and it's just that courageous spirit. And I think if I look the other way around, I probably was somebody who had that courageous spirit around people who wanted to show me something. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a responsibility. I don't think we just take in this world. I think we give and take. And um, I don't think there's a school now that you can go to and just get your questions answered. And to be honest, uh, trying to learn how to make watches and repair watches was something like that for me. Like, God, I wish I could just ask somebody this. Well, you, you can, I mean, yeah. you know, it's, sure. <laughs> you got yeah, go to exactly. go to school and, um, or, or just get on into the school of hard knocks. And I feel like there is something in between. Mm-hmm. So I really like mentoring yeah. the, um, business side i think people oftentimes want mentorship on design which is something i don't really believe in i think you you're gonna make it or you're not um it's gonna be on you i I can't really help with that kind of stuff you know but i can help with like how to make things if that's your question my opinion if you want my opinion on if it's sellable or less sellable Mm -hmm. than other things but we've been very fortunate um in my company during the time that I've been alive during because the 90s were a a period where it was somewhat easier to do business and I was lucky to be at the heyday of my business during during that time and people have a disadvantage now because of the world wide web in the biggest advantage that it has um, which is you have access to all this information is the biggest limitation that it has which is you have access to all this information so I guess Mm -hmm. what I try to do with young professionals and when i say young i mean people i mentee are also in their 60s and older even it doesn't have to do with age it's young the idea that they want to make something um they want to achieve their goals so my mentorships are very goal driven um and i just Mm -hmm. help like 
mentors would just help you stay on track with the goals, help you achieve the things that I can help with. And then hopefully you go on and be way bigger and way better than, you know, any of the mentors that, that they had, <laughs> but I think it's a responsibility oh, no, for sure. Um, and I really enjoy it actually, actually I'm incredibly thankful when somebody asked me to spend time on their project or on their life, because it also takes me a little bit out of my own, which is nice. Well, I, I think it's very commendable and, and very important to pass knowledge and pay forward what has been given to us. You know, I, I was lucky enough that I had my mentor and when I moved to New York and and I've been very lucky and I was, I will not be where I am be, if it wasn't for her. Yeah. And I'm trying to do the same to the, the younger generation and trying to like really impart my knowledge as much as I can. Well, good <laughs> on you. We all need it. <laughs> feel that building the commu communities is extremely important. And um, especially mm -hmm. in this industry that, even though it's all over the world, it's still very small. Yeah. You know, when you look at it, it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty small. And, and I think it, it's, it's great if we can all help each other. Um, speaking of goals, what do you see for Todd Reed going, moving, like the company moving forward? I think the, the safest answer for that is the, the moving forward is a, is a long continuation of trying to make really beautiful and unique pieces. Like we talked about earlier, trying to make them better as I screw them up, um, trying to learn not only how to make better works that are more authentic to me and to the people that I'm making them with or for, but also to run a great business. I find it incredibly yeah. worthwhile and valuable to and that's kind of like oh what's a good business what's a bad business um and i don't know that there's any rules to it but i'm i it, it really is important to me to have good communications not get too far ahead of myself at this stage i'm more tired in life i think and I, you know i don't want to um light a fire everywhere i go i think peace um and calmness and the most beautiful work in the world is the you know, the legacy of the brand. Uh, we've always sort of spoken for yeah. things like acceptance, tolerance, serenity, part of the, the pieces, the parts that encompass like a talismanic, energetic, empathetic, um, creative nature, which is just the way that my company touches mm -hmm. the world, that my staff touches the world, that our patrons touch the world, that our clients touch the world. Um, yeah. I guess what would be up to me is to not screw it up, you know, to keep trying to make yeah. the work and the relationships as as valuable as they can be on all the levels um, that we consider them to be valuable. That's wonderful. I love that. I really, really appreciate you taking the time and, and talking to me. And this is like the perfect like cherry on top of this conversation. I have some compulsory questions that I like to ask everybody. Uh, what's your favorite gemstone? Diamond. And is... <laughs> The rougher, the better. <laughs> um, what's your favorite metal? Um, yellow gold. What carrot? Um, well, I just but I the, love what... pure, I love pure gold, but we we work primarily mm. in eighteen karat gold. I just feel like once I touch okay. gold, life was different. Gold is gold. It yeah, is. yeah. Gold council, you can use that. It's... Gold is gold. That is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what's your favorite technique or tool? um hammer i think forging hammer. gold and i mean of course we use a ton of palladium still um even though the price is weird and stuff um i love forging metal um i always opt to forge metal make things hollow um give things texture and life because the energy of the maker is directly translated through the tools and into the piece and again, you know, not to harp on it, but since we're making talismans and since we're making heritage pieces, the jewelers, the office staff, the sales staff were completely aligned on this energetic path that the pieces go through. So they're very, um, mm -hmm. what I would call handsy. <laughs> so yeah, the hammer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, who's your favorite artist? Doesn't need to be jewelry, can be anything who like inspires you. Um, thank gosh, that is such a tough question. You boil it down to one person. Um, I don't, I'm not a, a studier, like I've said, but I've always, mm. 
always, since I've been reading like things about artists, I've been really interested in Willem de Kooning. I don't even know why. Mm. I mean, I have <laughs> lots of reasons why I think, but um, I'm just sort of fascinated by this guy's life and his works. So, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. I'm going to have to check that out. Um, what's your favorite thing to listen while you work? Oh, my favorite while I work is total silence. Um, I don't really there's so much activity and there's so much noise all the time and um if I listen to any music it's going to be listening to um classical piano um solo Mm. cello or blues Mm. nice something soft something soft I I I love that um what do you want people to feel like when they wear your jewelry Mm. I want them to feel um, many things, but I want them to feel beautiful. And this is not a sexist statement. I want me myself to feel beautiful inside and out. My men customers, my child customers, my women customers. Um, I think that the jewelry offers an opportunity to connect. And in that connection, both inwardly and outwardly, I think there's a nice sense of beauty to it. So I mean, meaning it's double, yeah. it's like the aesthetic piece, but there's an, also another thing going on with the beauty, which is about connection. Yeah. Uh, do you have any advice for future jewelry generations? Um, well, I have been asked this question before. I always say the same thing. I don't know if there's anything better to say. Um, and I'm, I say this in with full conviction is um, go with your passion. Um, yeah. And even myself at any given time have decided it you know, to go for something else for a period of time and then remembered. The only advice that I've ever really given anybody is go with your passion. And that's one that I should always follow. Yeah, that's a good one. That's always a good one. Uh, You have been incredible. Thank you. Super generous for your time. I really appreciate it. And um, where can people find your work? The best way is probably to jump onto my website and take a look at our brand partners that we have. I work with um, a really good handful of stores that carry my pieces and that have decided that they want to continue to work, you know, alongside of with me on this long mm-hmm. roller coaster of jewelry making. Um, you can come to my store and look in Boulder, Colorado. Um, you can get on our social media email me i'll send you some things <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but hopefully we're visible i would type into the www's and see who's got what todd reed jewelry on instagram toddreed.com is my website um oh. i have some exhibits um currently i have some exhibits coming up um our retailers do an incredible job of telling my story um they're brand partners for a reason i've had a and they really, we do it all together. Um, and then also even yeah. just on like Google, which is kind of crazy. Um, I just learned, realized recently that there's um, there's a whole like thing just on Google, just about our store, which is wild. I don't, Google just does it for really? you, I guess, where you can go yeah. on and it shows pictures of the store and things that other people have contributed and even some yeah. like, couple nice things that people have said about us and everything. So um, I think maybe that's, that's a good nice. place to start. <laughs> for sure well i'll definitely uh when we decide to go to colorado i'm definitely stopping in your store because definitely. i really want to see it <laughs> yeah well thank you so much again for your time really appreciate it thank you very much a thousand facets is produced and edited by me Please visit A Thousand Facets on Instagram to see photos of some of the things we spoke about during the interview. Music by Chris Keys. You can find him on Instagram at Chris underscore Keys underscore underscore. Please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Oh, baby,